Tonight's talk is entitled The Power of Potty Training. There once was a land far, far away in which no one was potty trained. And they didn't think anything about it because that's how they were socialized. And they didn't know anybody who was potty trained and it didn't occur to anybody that you could be or even that you might want to be. But then one day a stranger arrived from a distant land and there was something something special about him. He, he smelled a little better than other people and, and he had a message. He was bringing a teaching from us, uh, another ancient sage. The teaching of potty training. And he pointed out to all these people that they too could they could restrain themselves from regularly soiling themselves. Now a lot of people didn't think anything, they, they, didn't, uh, they didn't pay him any heed. After all, they were doing fine the way they were. But some people paid attention to him and began to at least open up to the possibility that, that he was saying something, that he was telling the truth, that it is possible to be, to be potty trained. And he held himself up as the example. He said, look at me. I, my diapers are clean. And so some people opened to the possibility and began to actually feel bad about the fact that they were not potty trained. This in itself was an extraordinary event for those few people who heeded the message because they had gone from a state of what Maslow would have called unconscious incompetence and by the way unconscious incontinence <laughs> to the next of the four stages of Maslow's stages of learning conscious incompetence. Now they knew that they were not potty trained and they felt bad about it. But they couldn't stop. This is a very frustrating stage in learning for everyone. I know I'm, I, I have just come to the realization that I'm not doing it right and I can't help it. And yet it's an important stage because this is where you can get in the wedge to make some progress. So at this point, the people who were interested asked the, the sage, what can we do about it? And he said, well, I'm glad you asked because this is why I've come to, to bring this message. What you can do is pay, pay careful attention to the sensations of your body. And when you feel like you might be just about to go, rush to the bathroom. So people who began to really implement this practice had some initial successes and some failures, of course, because that's how it works. They were transitioning from this second stage of conscious incompetence to the third of the four stages, which is conscious competence. 
at which point, by dint of much effort, you can manage to restrain yourself on occasion and make it to the bathroom on time. And for those who persisted in the training, there would come this magical day, this, trans- this day of transcendence, when they would realize, I don't even have to try anymore. I just don't soil myself. This is a truly remarkable thing. And in fact, it's so remarkable, it's, it, it defies explanation. How do we go from this stage of actually working hard at the stage of conscious competence to the skill becoming second nature, becoming the baseline? And it's such a remarkable thing that they were able to create a religion. This, this sage of potty training was able to create a religion around it. And there were, there were doctrines and there were, there were gods involved because clearly this was the work of the gods. When something goes from the, from the stage of being something you have to do to something that just happens, that is transcendence. The sage was eventually able to set up, uh, he had some disciples who, were, who became very advanced and they also taught this wonderful art. And they were, always, they were always careful never to charge money because we're talking about something holy. You, you must never charge money for the teaching of something that's as special as potty training, something transcendent. And so they were very careful to only accept donations and pretend to be disinterested in worldly things. There are a lot of parallels between potty training or learning to ride a bicycle or learning to walk or learning to play a musical instrument and what we call enlightenment. I'm willing to make the case, granted I know I'm wrong or at least someone could make the case that I'm wrong and I will probably reverse my position on this before too long but I'm willing to make the case that there's nothing holy or transcendent, nothing any more transcendent about enlightenment, awakening, than there is about potty training. In both cases, you move through Maslow's four stages of learning, from unconscious incompetence, where I don't even know I'm doing it wrong, so to speak. And if you look at our culture at large, most people don't accept enlightenment as a reasonable goal or indeed even a possibility. It's off the radar. Some people do consider it to be a possibility and and even desirable, at which point they will universally find out that although they would like to be awakened, they are not. And so they've reached this stage, the second of the four stages, conscious incompetence. I know I'm doing it wrong, I can't help it. And this is where we can put in the wedge. 
we can say we have techniques and if you train in these techniques and it involves by the way pay, paying attention to the body and paying attention to the mind if you do this you'll have some successes and some failures but you'll move toward more and more successes to the point where at, at those times when you really set your mind to it you can be alert you can be awake in a moment so you will have reached the third stage conscious competence by dint of much effort I can be awake for a little while and finally that magical transcendent day that holy day when it, it's taken out of your hands it becomes your baseline the stage of unconscious competence you don't even have to try to be awake it's interesting to ponder how we came to this conclusion how we came to the conclusion that awakeness or enlightenment is so much different than any other kind of human learning there are lots of ways to look at this I, I always like to ask who benefits people who teach awakening and would like to be thought of as special or to gain some special status they might benefit from making it sound like it's a big deal or inaccessible to the unwashed masses but let's just assume for the sake of argument that it is not a big deal it's nothing much more special than learning to play piano or guitar a foreign language or potty training So we can take the woo-woo out of it. We can take the religion out of it. And when we do, we're just going to be left with some techniques that we can practice and get better at and finally get to that magical transcended day. So leaving aside the fact that this line of reasoning will encounter resistance from those who like the religious aspect, leaving that aside at least for the moment, we can get right to it. We can get right to the techniques and practices and um, attitudes and conceptual frameworks of support that will lead to awakening. When I look at all of the various traditions that, that I've been exposed to, whether through formal training or, or 
in most cases through um, through reading or hearing other people speak about things they've been trained in. The common denominator of technologies that that, that lead to awakening is continuous attention to the present moment. Continuous attention to the the flow of information that's coming into the sense the sense organs or the sense doors as, as Buddhism would say. In Buddhism they identify six sense doors. The five that we would normally think of, the body senses, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching and smelling, plus thinking, things that are coming into the mind. This is a very interesting way to think of it. It levels the playing field. Anything that you can experience, anything that's coming in, is just sensory input. So right away you can, you can dispense with the notion of, a, of, a, uh, of an agent or a, an author of the experience or someone to whom it's happening. You actually don't need that. You have these, these, sense, these sensory inputs. It's very common for us to identify with the thinking door. I'm the one who thinks. And yet, when you actually look at it, well, thinking is happening to me just as surely as seeing is happening. Happening to me, happening to whom? Good question. Is there any me, is there any I, other than sensory input? And if so, how would I know? Because I've covered all of our experience with those six senses. Anything that could possibly happen is either coming in through seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, or thinking. Some kind of mental impression is all included in thinking. Now, if there is an I, I must be the one who knows about this. I must not be what is known. So if I, if I look at the clock, the clock is objectified. That's an object. I know about the clock, therefore I am not the clock. Same thing with the tree. Same thing with the hearing of the voices. I am not those voices. I'm the one who knows about them. I am not this coolness on my flesh. I'm the one who knows about it. I am not this tasting. I know about this tasting. I know about this smelling. And I know about these thoughts. None of these thoughts are I. They're all being known. They can all be taken as object. And anything that is taken as object is not I. So when I look for this I, what do I see? I've always assumed there was an I, so let's find out. What I find is sensory input. 
So while we can logically make a bulletproof argument that there must be subjectivity, we can't really prove it. We can't experience it. And at this point, it gets very mysterious. So you can you can understand why some some woo woo might grow up around this. But we can just keep it simple. All right, I can I can I can learn to live with the fact that there's no I to be found. But practically speaking, all all uh, theory aside, practically speaking, this is a very liberating point of view. When I ask myself, to whom is this happening, and I come up with nobody, well, it certainly takes the heat off. So who is giving this ridiculous talk who's going to have to take heat for it later? When, when people see that I'm attacking ancient mystical traditions and, and belittling them. Who is this? Who am I? Who is invested in these ideas? If you ask the question, who am I, or, or who is the knower of this experience, and all you get is sensory input, including thoughts, and you find yourself a bit disoriented, well, I would call that a very good thing. If you find yourself in free fall wondering, wondering, because there isn't any conclusion to be drawn. There isn't any conclusion to be drawn. What can I say about this? Can I make any definitive statements about the nature of reality based on the fact that the I cannot be found? It seems, it would seem that I cannot. I cannot say that there is an I. I cannot say that there is no I. There may be, I just can't see it. Nobody can see it. Nobody ever has seen it. So I'm left in this kind of free fall. I don't know. Part of the skill that, we're, that we train in is being okay with not knowing. There's a certain kind of superficial comfort in, in digging in and pretending to know. But if I'm to be completely honest with myself, I, I will just have to throw up, throw up my hands and say, I don't know.
we can systematically investigate everything in our experience using the four foundations of mindfulness as taught by the Buddha. I've made the assertion that the I cannot be found, but I think each of us has to run the experiment and, and see, and, and run it over and over again and see where this leads. So, beginning with the first foundation of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of the five physical sense doors, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, and smelling, I mentioned that, as far as I can tell, the common denominator between all the effective technologies for awakening is continuous attention to the moment, which is to say, the sense doors. And one way to ensure that I do that, one way to create a feedback loop to make sure that I'm paying attention, is to note, aloud, to label my experience like this. So if I do it at the, at the six, rather the five, physical senses, I would say seeing, hearing, touching, 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 hearing, 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 touching. And if I want to go further into that and get more precise, I can subdivide the tactile sense into lots of different categories. So I can say, instead of touching, I can say coolness, pressure, itching, expansion, coolness, heaviness, coolness, itching, and so on. The second foundation of mindfulness is in the Pali word from the, the ancient Indian language Pali is Vedana or Vedana, V-E-D-A-N-A. Vedana is the built-in aspect to any sensory input of being either pleasant, unpleasant or neutral and you experience this in the body. So if I were to do the first two foundations of mindfulness together, I would say itching, unpleasant, hearing, neutral, tension, unpleasant, coolness, pleasant, lightness, pleasant, itching, unpleasant, seeing, neutral. The third foundation of mindfulness, at least the way I teach this, is, is mind states. And mind states are ephemeral emotions or attitudes. So if you were to just filter for this third foundation, mind states, often when somebody first learns this technique, they will, uh, uh, I will ask somebody, okay, let's, uh, let's have you note at mind state, note mind states, and they will say, well, I'm, I'm trying to find something, but I'm not quite sure what I should be looking for. And I might point out, okay, but you know you're looking. And they would say yes. I'd say, okay, that's investigation, which is a mind state, which can be noted. So you say, investigation. A few more seconds go by and somebody might say, I just feel frustrated, I'm not seeing it. And I say, well, frustration is a mind state, which can be noted. So you say frustration. 
and they might say, I'm starting to feel self-conscious because I know you're listening and I'm not coming up with anything. And I'll say, well, self-consciousness is a mind state. It can be noted. And then they might realize, well, I just noted three things in a row. Triumph. Self-congratulation. These are mind states. Noting mind states is very interesting because there's always something you can note. You always have some kind of a reaction to what's going on. Even if it's irritation or anger or annoyance, frustration, something's coming up. And it tends to be self-correcting. So if you're noting mind states and you're feeling really bad, you can say um, aversion, unhappiness, disgust, annoyance, irritation, self-pity. And about the time you get to self-pity, you realize it's kind of funny, so you say amusement. Amusement leads to laughing and you say joy. So it tends to even itself out over time. So that's the third foundation of mindfulness, which is mind states. The fourth foundation of mindfulness is subtle mental objects. So we would use mental imagery and thoughts as object. So if I were to note uh, at the fourth foundation now, so I'll do this in real time to demonstrate. Remembering thought, evaluation thought, speculation thought, Remembering thought, imaging thought, fantasy thought, remembering thought, evaluation thought, imaging thought, remembering thought, evaluation thought, self-congratulatory thought, amused thought, evaluation thought, anticipation thought. In every case, as I'm noting at the four foundations, I'm getting this real-time feedback loop. I know I'm doing it right. There's no question about whether I'm doing it right because doing it right is defined as being continuously present, continuously attentive to what's happening in the moment. Well, I cannot note aloud unless I'm doing that. And if I should, if I should manage to talk myself into wondering if I'm doing it right, I can note doubt. That's a mind state. That's perfectly legitimate and it proves that I've done it right. Now noting in this way, noting aloud, I think of this as a brute force technique. Not because it's, not because it's violent, it isn't, it's very gentle. It's brute force technique in the sense that it works just because you do it. You don't have to believe in it. You don't have to think you're doing it right. You just have to sit there and note continuously, preferably aloud, and the aloud part is important because my own experience shows me that noting aloud will keep me from losing my track. If I sit down with a very firm determination to note silently, I'll start out doing well, but within a few minutes, maybe a few seconds, I'll get drawn away by a thought train and I'll just forget to note, to note mentally. If, on the other hand, I'm noting aloud, 
the sound of my own voice is reminding me. So if I don't hear my own voice coming back every second or so, that's my wake-up call. I can take this further. I can add another level of accountability by taking my little digital recorder and recording and recording my noting. Even if I know in my heart of hearts I'm never going to listen to this, I still feel accountable to it. it I would feel ashamed of myself if I left long gaps on this because even though I'm not going to listen to it, I know I could. So, the, so a recorder turns out to be a real support for noting aloud and therefore continuously noticing what's going on in the moment. And another way, which actually is even more uh, effective and very engaging, is to get with a partner and note ping-pong style, back and forth at the four foundations of mindfulness in any order, a random access, or you can drill one. So for example, Beth, will you help me demonstrate? I'm just going to get close enough that you can talk into my microphone. Okay, here's ping pong noting at all four foundations of mindfulness. Itching. Tiredness. Coolness. Pressure. Hearing. Amusement. Imaging thought. Dryness. Amusement. Pressure. Joy. Amusement. Itching. Happiness. Speculation thought. Pressure. Tension unpleasant. Dryness. Tension unpleasant. Amusement. Stretching. Pressure. Joy. Amusement. Remembering thought. Happiness. Anticipation. Joy. Tension. Amusement. Okay, that's ping pong noting. And you can do this with anybody. This technique is really, really simple. And it's a bulldozer. It is going to work. I don't even understand why we don't do this more. I don't understand why. We do it all the time. I don't understand why everybody doesn't do this. I don't know why the Buddhists haven't been teaching this. Notice I'm, I'm cranking on all the traditional stuff today, but as long as I'm on a roll. Notice that when you get, in, when you get into a, a monastery to do a retreat, there, there, there will be a bunch of people sitting cross-legged on the floor, and there will be a teacher at the front, usually a monk. There might be a hundred people in that meditation hall. Now, when you've got a hundred people in a meditation hall, and you're in charge of it, your first order of business is crowd control. So what are you going to say to them? The first thing you're going to say is, sit there and be quiet. <laughs> Above all, don't annoy the other 99 people in here. <laughs> now, second, the second order of business might be, let's do a technique that would lead to awakening. And by the way, it's been pointed out to me when I've made this point before that that often is not the second order of business, it's probably the third. Because the second order of business might be to indoctrinate you into some way of thinking, some traditional way of thinking. Now, is that traditional way of thinking really better than the way you think now? I'm skeptical. So, unless the traditional way of thinking includes very clear structures, structured ways of thinking about the practice schema to support the practice, I say it's 
it's an entirely different endeavor. I love culture. Culture is wonderful. But it doesn't have that much to do with awakening. So if we strip away the cultural component, this gets really simple. So I'm answering my own question here. Why isn't it usually taught this way that people should note aloud? Because it's unwieldy. And yet, it's really effective. So if you really want to awaken, this is one of the most powerful things you can do. To sit with another person and note aloud, ping-pong style, partner noting. So I'm going to end the talk here because I want to set up uh, the people in this group to do partner noting and damn the torpedoes. Thank <laughs> you.